everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. We're going to be talking about the movie Arrival with our friend Ryan Ken. This is a delightful conversation. First, I need to let you know that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash youaregood. If you support us there, you get a couple of bonus episodes a month. Sarah just pointed out that if you combine the bonus episodes and our episodes on the proper channel, we have well over 100 episodes now. And in Sarah's words, go us. <laughs> you Are Good is also made possible with the support of Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And we make playlists to accompany each of our episodes. If you want to listen to the music that comes to mind when we think of this conversation, the themes that we touched on, and the movie itself, you can find that playlist in our show notes. Just look down that thing that says things about the show on your podcast thing, your podcast machine, <laughs> your podcast app, whatever it is. And uh, you'll find a link to the playlists that we make about each of the songs. I don't have a whole lot to say about this episode that the episode doesn't say itself. It was just truly delightful. Ryan is so much fun. So we're just going to get into it. How's everything out in your world? You know, turbulent times as ever, but... You are good, and we appreciate you being here with us. Thank you so much. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on in your life? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm wearing a scarf indoors. It's a little crispy, but yeah, I feel like... Maybe I can see spring on the horizon, or maybe I'm kidding myself, but I can because it's light for longer. And we're talking about aliens today with Ryan Ken. I'm so excited. We're talking about the concept of aliens and the movie Arrival, not the movie Aliens, which would also be amazing. Maybe we should also do that. Ryan, why did you bring this movie to us and what's your relationship with it? And first, wait, first, geez, tell us about you. So my name is Ryan Kin. I am a writer and an actor and a performer. And during the pandemic, uh, I kind of made some online videos where I got to explore some of my satirical, social commentary, comedic voice. And now I am a writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Mm. And I'm non-binary and my pronouns are they, them. I love talking about movies. And I will say I am trying my best not to fan out because for all of the parasocial relationships we navigate, I feel like the one I I have the worst issue with is podcasters because Mm. I'm like, oh, we're friends. Well, it makes sense. You are the voices I hear every day. Because <laughs> they literally talk in your head, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It feels like more information. So my like unhealthy attachment feels more more reasonable. I've got more evidence in a runway. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. My parasociality is different, but, and I think I mentioned this to you before, but like in the past two years, which have been very difficult, sometimes when I wake up and I'm like, there's literally no point to anything and et cetera, et cetera. Just like, you know, reading the list of depressing thoughts. And then I'm like, wait, no, I can watch a video of Nancy Grace reciting Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was absolutely inspired by the episode of You're Wrong About where you were talking about Nancy Grace and her being an English major and the idea of her reciting Shakespeare was, I just could not shake it. I love it so <laughs> much. It's one of my favorite things I've ever made. That's so, so. Uh, It's one of my favorite things that anyone has ever made. And I also, when we made that episode, I think I did an impression of Nancy Grace reading Shakespeare and we had, or at least of her lecturing. And we had to cut it because I was so loud that I got all plosive <laughs> and it was like unusable because you have to, obviously, as you know, you have to go loud when you do a Nancy Grace. <laughs> you do. Oh my God. I don't know what it is when it's like people who have parasocial relationships that go both right. ways. Like That's a different thing. Yeah, that's a different thing. Totally. It still functions as a one-sided relationship, but it goes in different directions. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, that's the point. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. And I'm so glad that you brought this movie that I forgot that I loved until you brought it here. And why did you bring this one? This is one of my, I think, favorite alien movies. So it wasn't a movie I saw when it was released. And I, I looked it up. I believe it came out 2016. I saw it after it was available to stream somewhere. And I was like, oh, you know, I like sci-fi. I enjoy Amy Adams. Let me watch this. And it totally took me down every ADHD rabbit hole possible. I was reading physics papers I did not understand. <laughs> I was consuming everything around it. And what I liked was it was such an interesting mode of storytelling and it was mm. and it was centered around a logistical question that I'd never even thought to ask is if the aliens come to Earth, how would we talk to them? <laughs> and so this story that was centered around a linguist and the reflections around language and our meditations on time, one of my favorite things that sci-fi does was it prompted so many philosophical conversations. And I also think it really inspired me to tell story in part because the form of the film itself is the demonstration that it's also trying to give you about time. And that just kind of blew my mind and opened up what I thought about how you could tell a story and what a good sci-fi movie in particular is. I was telling Sarah before we got on that, like, my favorite alien movies are not about the aliens. And this mm -hmm. is very much, I think, in line with that. And when I first watched it, I think a lot of my initial interest was kind of in, you know, the science and linguistics part of it. And then rewatching it, I think the emotional narrative of it was really true. I think this is also the perfect you are good movie <laughs> because it's essentially aliens coming to earth, holding humanity by the face and saying, you are good. There is good in there somewhere. And that really got me on this most recent watch of it. Mm -hmm. But I, I love the film so, so much. Thanks for thinking of it on that level where it makes sense for the theme of the show too. Sarah, had you had an existing relationship with this movie? And if not, I mean, either way, if, if so, yeah. if not, can you walk us through what this movie is? So we open with Amy Adams talking to her daughter, apparently, and quickly watching her daughter be born, have a childhood, grow up or grow at least into adolescence and then die of some kind of illness. And her mother, Amy Adams, grieve. And then we see Amy Adams in her job as a linguist, where she, after a national emergency that like hits different uh, now than in 2016, I assume, <laughs> where everyone <laughs> yeah. shows up at class and she's like, now we're going to talk about linguistics today. And then it turns out that 12 alien pods have touched down all over the world. 
which is great because it's totally the Independence Day opening. And this movie is like the obverse of Independence Day, which is sort of expressed by just the colors and Amy Adams's wardrobe, I think, which is like she wears a lot of beautiful neutrals and olives. And they're like, what if Independence Day focused entirely <laughs> on Jeff Goldblum and Judd Hirsch's characters? Yes. And what if <laughs> Jeff Goldblum was like a quiet, somber woman <laughs> played by Amy Adams, who oh. is of indeterminate age because she has looked 36 for 15 years. <laughs> Truly. She is approached by the government to come look at the American pod, which is touched down in Montana, which is a great place for it. Wide open spaces. And they choose her because she's just the best linguist. And then so she shows up at the facility in a sequence that I love because it reminds me of the opening of the Silence of the Lambs, where it's like hmm. short lady with a little red ponytail being whisked <laughs> around a big government compound by scary guys. <laughs> And then she meets Jeremy Renner, who's like, hi, I'm the love interest, probably. And you're like, oh, all right. I like, though, his interest is, hi, I'm the love interest, and you're wrong. He comes right out the gate and is like, your idea is wrong. I was like, it's a man. He's like, I've heard it's my job to nag you, so I'm doing it. I'm doing a Chris Pratt in Jurassic World. But I'm, I'm a lot cuter, I think, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and so they are put in their little orange hazmat suits and brought into the pod where they float up into this corridor. It's all very trippy. This film is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who directed Dune. So you know what this is like. I didn't know this until today. Mm -hmm. I was like, I will watch Dune now. Right. You should also watch the original Dune because like, listen, the new Dune, it's great. It's wonderful. Doesn't have pugs. Old Dune pugs. That's all I'm saying. Oh, this is helpful information. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they go up into the pods and they meet the aliens who are these two. They look like big hairy hands mixed with squid, mixed with elephants. That's my descriptions. Mm, that's great. I would agree. It's like, I saw, I think, a sculpture behind the scenes where they're gigantic and the bottom looks like a squid and then it's this weird kind of amorphous shape. And the abstraction of the aliens is also something I actually really enjoyed mm. because so often when we imagine alien movies, they're like on two feet and they talk like us and they mm -hmm. can immediately speak English. And I think approaching the construction of the alien as abstract actually allows, I think, a lot of the movie to do what it does well is to be a mirror because it's so, at least in form, not human and kind of not of this earth other than kind of the squid-like nature of it, that that's actually one of my favorite parts is the design mm. of just, they just look weird. They don't look like anything. Their structure doesn't seem to make sense. When I think about it, it really bothers me that most cinematic aliens just are like, hi, I have a big head. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> could we try? <laughs> like, what about a cloud of gas, you know? Yeah. Alex, what are your thoughts on these aliens? I mean, I thought the same thing. Like, I love the, I think it's kind of like more jellyfish as far as how it has that like tall top. Oh, that's true. But certainly octopus legs, although longer and sort of more versatile. There's like some jo interesting joints and stuff. And I really love the elephant skin description. I think that's correct. And they're hmm. big. They're like, obviously, I spent a lot of time looking up fan sites and stuff last night. And they're 9.5 meters. Wow. Hmm. So they're like 
a lot taller. There's a scene where we see Amy Adams with one. Is it in her mind or whatever? We can talk about that later, but it's tall. It towers over her. Right. Yeah, they're big, peaceful guys. They have like Snuffleupagus energy a little bit. It's like in Star Trek Four when they communicate with the whales, <laughs> yes. like the whales are the aliens kind of in Star Trek Four because they go to Earth. Anyway. Alex, thank you for finally being the person who isn't me in a conversation who brings up Star Trek Four. I'm always the one. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek Four is one of those like few titles where I'm like, did I dream this? Oh, it's so beautiful. They're like, Leonard Nimoy, you are 58 years old. Get in that tank and swim. <laughs> around holding onto a humpback whale and he's like you don't have to tell me twice <laughs> this has some star trek 4 dna in it yes and also i was watching it and i didn't realize it was directed by the guy who did the new adaptation of dune and i was like this has some themes kind of like dune i felt like i was very smart for noticing that <laughs> so yes they meet the aliens amy adams immediately is like have you tried talking to them <laughs> And it's so good. And her character's name is Louise, by the way. So I guess it makes me really happy that this is a space alien movie. And the main character is like just a quiet academic named Louise. She probably drinks a lot of sleepy time tea at home. <laughs> I don't mean to jump the gun on this, but they're invited by Forrest Whitaker's character, yes. right? who's the yes. government rep. And like, I know that Forrest Whitaker has at least at this point, two decades worth of playing badasses in his experience, in like very mm -hmm. intense, extreme badasses sometimes. But I just can't get him in Fast Times at Ridgemont High out of my head for my entire life. <laughs> I forgot he was in that movie. You know, he's kind of like a doofy athlete. Huh. And so anytime I see him and he's, he just has so much gravity in him. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I see him, I'm like, oh yeah, Forrest Whitaker's a fucking badass. <laughs> he does. And I watched a behind the scenes interview with Amy Adams talking talking about like her experience of acting with him was similar. She was like, oh my God, I've been a scene before as Whitaker. She talked about getting emotional afterward. And their relationship in the movie, I think is one of the other ones that I really enjoy hmm. because so much of this movie is trying to talk across science and discipline. Mm -hmm. And it demonstrates like how hard that is. And so like Sarah, what you said is like, have you tried talking to them? Doesn't necessarily occur to all of these military bureaucrats who only see it as an adversarial kind of relationship and her often trying to like explain the nuance and complexity of it. It just hits different, too, because we've lived in a pandemic mm -hmm. where we've struggled with interpreting science communication and scientists actually being like, actually don't know enough to give you an answer about that yet. And it changes and we feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. There was so much about that aspect of it that felt really true to life. Yeah, it feels like a worryingly prescient. Of course, it also contains the element of like random civilians being more dangerous than the perceived threat in at least one case throughout the story, which it has in common with Dawn of the Dead. Yay. And so Amy Adams first tries to communicate with the spoken word and then that doesn't really work. And then she, so she gets a little whiteboard and writes human on it. And then the alien shoots out his tentacle, their tentacle, and makes a little, it's like a circle, but with, how to describe it? It's beautiful. They, but that, this is how we learn that they communicate in these sort of pictograms in the air that are incredibly complex is how I would describe it. Yeah. It looks like a coffee mug ring. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> like a really beautiful coffee mug ring. 
Yeah. And so she starts learning their language and she and Jeremy Renner are working together, working with these aliens. They're the only ones making headway. And then meanwhile, the scientists and militaries of the 12 other countries where the alien pods have touched down are also working with them. And she and Jeremy Renner named them Abbott and Costello, which I thought was very cute. If you're going to work with aliens, you should give them cute nicknames. (laughs) And then I may be leaving stuff out, but I think things basically really escalate when we learn that China has decided to go to war with the aliens and then other countries are going to join in. So it's like we're on the verge This is like a really good pick for this week. (laughs) So we're like, because of escalations, we're on the verge of some kind of all out human versus alien war, potentially, if Amy Adams doesn't intervene. And part of it is because the aliens have started saying to their scientists in each country, what the scientists are variously translating is like, use the weapon or offer the weapon. And everyone, when they hear that, is freaking out. They're like, weapon? What weapon? Ah!" And by the way, Amy Adams has warned against this situation. Amy Adams is like, the reason this takes a long time is because we need to have some common understanding about what our words are, not just because it frames our question, but it will help us understand our answer. And they're like, hooray, hooray, rightfully so, because we have situations Mm -hmm. in which like radicalized members of the military are trying to like bomb this thing and people people are getting antsy, obviously. <laughs> and so there's that tension, mm-hmm. even though she's been warning the whole time, she's up against other natural looming threats. Right. And it's like, it's just Amy Adams against the military industrial complex. <laughs> you know? So she's like, I know that there's something more going on here. I need to figure it out. And then based on the Chinese translations and what they're saying, they're getting from their aliens. She's like, well, those words are all Mahjong suits. So it sounds like they're playing Mahjong with their aliens. And if they're gamifying communication and they're making everything adversarial, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's just a lot of like a lot of the stuff that she says in this movie is actually interesting, which is really a departure from movies about scientists, which normally just have them say like three unrelated sentences that are generally true about physics. And then the general audience member is like, all right. I'm satisfied. And that's like how you make Armageddon. And this is like, she's actually saying stuff that you're listening to and thinking about. Right. Right. Cause it like shapes her worldview. It's not just like, she's like, I have to do this because of process. Right. I love that. Like the ultimate question of the movie is about like, okay, how do we talk to the aliens? But we have to sort of step back and ask, what is language? How does speaking English impact? Like how do these aliens understand time And so much of this kind of like having to step back, I think that's the whole gift of an alien movie is to see humanity from a different vantage point. Mm -hmm. And so it's also even so beautiful to me that like when we encounter the aliens, we're on an alien spaceship that can like bend the laws of physics and we've got a whiteboard and a marker. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) There's something and human written on it. There's something so honestly human about that even about the movie there's so long before you even see the ships there's so long before you even see the aliens you're having to confront with what would this do to us who are we once this happens Mm. yeah and the fact that the premise is kind of reminiscent of independence day like i like that because you know naturally in that movie they turn out to be very hostile and i always love friendly alien movies but you always feel like an idiot if you're hoping for one and then 
they're hostile aliens in the movies. Like some hippies hoped that they were friendly aliens, but they got evaporated. Don't be a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This kind of feels like a millennial close encounters, even Ooh. in the way that the pod kind of communicates in tones and the aliens are like, they're really vibrating. You know, they're, it's like very trippy and pleasant the way they have the aliens communicate through soundscape okay but amy adams is on the case she's figuring it out and she keeps having these visions or like sort of billy pilgrim out of time moments where she's like with her daughter who we saw in the opening moments of the movie at different ages and she's like what's happening this is weird what's going on so she communes with them basically and she's been studying their language and she can speak to them and they give her their sort of like ink for her to manipulate into a an idea to communicate with them and stuff. And we figure out that she is in a time loop where she is being given the information that she needs to do what she has to do now through memories of the future. And she has to contact the Chinese military to convince them to not go to war with the aliens. And she does. And when we had this reveal and I was like, we're in a time loop. I was so excited because I love time loop stories for some reason. So she like has this memory of meeting. He's like in charge of just the Chinese military generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're like at this big fancy party 18 months later and you see, oh, my gosh. And they named the aliens tetrapods, heptapods, 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 seven feet that we see the heptapod flag with a heptapod sort of speech coffee ring on it, hanging up at this big banquet. So we know things have worked out and heptapod diplomacy has come to fruition. <laughs> they get a flag. I love that they have a flag. <laughs> Do you think they designed it? Yeah. <laughs> she held different ones up. She's like, which one? And they were like, Poof, that one. <laughs> <laughs> they brought in Anthony Marantino and he was like, hates it. None of these. None of these are it. <laughs> But he said it in heptapod. Hates it. It was very spiky. Cantone, uh, we want you on. Oh my god. Yeah. We're Mario Cantone stands on this show. <laughs> so okay, so we see her at this banquet because heptapod, heptapod diplomacy has won. She is talking to the leader of the Chinese military, who's like, you know, something tells me that it's important that I tell you now about what the number for my direct line was that you reached me at 18 months ago and also what you said to me. The whole performance is so good because it's not even like, it's not self-aware. Yeah, It's like straight out of Twin Peaks and I love it yeah. so, so much. I do too. Because what I love about that moment is part of what the gift of the language is, is that ultimately, you know, this guy who's head of the Chinese military is potentially going to destroy this thing, is going to cause like calamity in the world. But the knowledge of the language, because learning the language means you experience time simultaneously and not linearly. It allows him to be the reason why everything almost blows up and also the reason why it works out in the end. Hmm. Like it really is an opportunity to like call to your higher self. Hmm. And that's kind of the gift of the language. That's one of my favorite parts of that scene. I love the heptapods. I was watching it and when it began, I was like, boy, I guess really like these big vibrating guys. And I guess like really hope that this doesn't turn into a thing where they're evil and we all feel tricked. And then I, they were just like, no, we're nice. It's like the, the gag in the Muppet movie where 
Sweetums keeps running after them and you're meant to think that Sweetums is a threat because Sweetums is like the one of the big like humanoid Muppets that's a person in a suit with like big eyebrows and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Sweetums? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. We're just letting you run. We're just. <laughs> oh, I know. I just wasn't seeing the look of like, yeah, Sweetums that I wanted for like full content because a lot of people don't know the different Muppets names exactly. Anyway, yeah, there's this running gag where like they're being chased by Sweetums and we're meant to assume Sweetums means ill because they're being chased by a lot of people eventually. And then it turns out that Sweetums is just like their fan and is like, no, I love you guys. And like, that's what the aliens aliens are Sweetums. And it's just so nice. You're just like, you're kind of expecting there to be some ridiculous twist where they're scary. Also probably because so many superhero movies have random alien antagonists now. And they're just like, no, we're very nice. And we've given Amy Adams the gift of our language. And if you speak our language, then you will learn how to perceive time differently and they're basically like okay amy adams we're gonna do humanity a solid and then in the three thousand years you have to do us a solid i love that (laughs) so much and because we've learned about their perception of time based on their language like that is immediate for them right like they need that now in their perception of time even though it's three thousand years from now i love that it wasn't wholly altruistic because like that's (laughs) Who cares? And we never find out why they need us. <laughs> it's some kind of solid. Also, the idea that we could save ourselves and potentially have use outside of ourselves is such an appealing idea to meditate on right now. Yeah. But I think the other thing the movie also kind of suggests, if you buy into what it puts forward about time, is that it's already happened. Right. We've already done right, it. Right, 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 right. Like, right. in this moment, we have already been helpful to them. And I and I like a nice alien movie. And I think the reason why I like a nice alien movie is because as a Black person who enjoys sci-fi, a lot of alien movies feel like white people exercising their anxieties about colonialism. Mm-hmm. Beings come to Earth They erase your way of life. Sometimes they spread disease. Sometimes they literally use your body to reproduce. And you have to actually go to space to imagine a force that could actually come and impact white people's lives the way that white people have impacted the lives of people globally. And what's interesting about a nice alien movie like this is it's actually an opportunity rather than to like subconsciously work out those anxieties is to confront them directly. Hmm. And one of the lines I don't like they gave to Forrest Whitaker is when he makes the point about like the aboriginals were a race that was inferior and then a superior race. But it's, I think what that clumsily does is it's trying to, I think even put forward what the movie is saying, which is like, this is about our own colonial anxieties and it can be deliberate about that on its face. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what I enjoy about a nice alien, too. And most sci-fi, too, is like, let's do colonialism in space so that we don't have to think about when we did it here and still do it and what that looks like. Like, if it's against aliens, that's cool. But let's get into the feelings. But before we get into the feelings, talk about how this concludes. Final act. Amy Adams averts global war. Great. (laughs) Girl boss. And then we realize... That what we think are flashbacks to her having a daughter who then dies and who she then has grieved before the beginning of the movie are actually her flash forwards to her future 
and the child she is going to have with Jeremy Renner, and it's information that the aliens have given her. And we just thought she was grieving at the start of the movie because she's just like a little depressed this semester. It's very relatable. <laughs> and Okay, so she averts global war. She understands what the aliens need and that we need to go do them a solid in 3,000 years. And then she's like, with the foreknowledge of exactly what will happen, that Jeremy Renner and I will fall in love. We're already beginning to fall in love. We will have this wonderful daughter. We will raise her. We will fight. We will divorce. And eventually my daughter will die at a young age and I will be horribly bereaved. I will buy the ticket and take the ride and enjoy all of it. Thank you, aliens. Thank you. So we know that in these flashbacks that turn out to be flash forwards that her husband is going to leave because she says something. Can we just clarify that quickly? Is it that she reveals that she knew all of this was going to happen and she says that at some point and that's why he leaves? Like, do we get an answer to that? We don't get a firm answer, but some of my interpretation has been like, she knew, I think in particular about the daughter's illness mm -hmm. and didn't tell. Yeah. And that was the read I had of it and that the Go. fracture happened because a sick child is probably a strain on any relationship, but also that one partner knew and the other partner, that, that, that I think always is what I imagined what the conflict between them was. Mm -hmm. Mm. The fact that she goes on from this and then has a daughter that gets sick and dies reminds me of the Titanic people that went to World War One. I. I, I really think you need to talk about your trip to Gatlinburg for just one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, I went to Gatlinburg, Tennessee for the most random reasons. And then there's turned out to be a Titanic museum at, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Obviously. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course. Of course. And I figured because the Gatlinburg's a big tourist trap that it would be not bad, but not great. And the museum was great. And it had a very interesting fixation on Jews that were on the Titanic and the experience that they had on the Titanic. And then after the Holocaust happened, like, which was great to think about all of the tourists that just went for like a casual Titanic time and were reminded that intolerance is a virus too, which was on all of the walls, which I loved so much. I just love all the people that are like, we went because of the yeah. movie and they had to be confronted with the Second World War and then the First World War. I demand to know who's running this museum. Me too. It's the guy who went after Ballard in the machine thing. Oh my God. Wow. Is he from Gatlinburg, Tennessee? Like <laughs> I'm assuming he is Jewish based on sort of the vibe at this place, but yeah. he, I was assume that he must be a guy. I don't know. He had his jumper on that he wore in that thing. Wow. And I want to recreate it because it's the most 80s, whatever that would be called, like a jumpsuit. It was beautiful. Anyway. Listeners, would you like a book on all the Titanic museums? I would. Please tweet at us. Thank you. Okay, great. That counts for 100 but tweets. Alex, I'm sorry. But the, what I came to realize in one of the walls that sort of memorialized people is like one of the people who survived was executed in the Holocaust. Terrible. But also a lot of the people that survived men went to go fight in world war one. And that was shocking to me <sighs> because it's obvious, but I also just inherently assumed they got a free pass for the rest of their lives. Right. The like, God is like, all right, my child, right. you're done. That's good. You finished early. And similar. So to this, thinking about the fact that Amy Adams was the one who averted global catastrophe, you'd think she'd be fine. But nope, she has a daughter that gets sick and dies prematurely and her husband leaves because she had foreknowledge of it. 
Yeah. And she chose that anyway. Yeah. It winds up not being as much of a meditation about free will, despite it being about like all time happening simultaneously (laughs) and you know everything that's going to happen. And there's something about her deliberately choosing her life, choosing to be in love, knowing it's going to end. Choosing to love a child, knowing that she's going to be sick. And I also think another part of the story that hit me on this rewatch is we have lived through this pandemic where we have been so careless and so irresponsible with the lives of disabled people Mm -hmm. that someone saying your life is vulnerable, your life matters, and I would choose you on purpose every time. It really touched me. And a lot of what it made me meditate on is what is the experience of grief of someone who does experience time all happening to them at the same time. Hmm. That even in their most intense moments of grief, they are also with the child that they lost. Hmm. That was such an appealing Hmm. thing to think about that really got my mind going and how present you have to be in your life when you know what's going to happen. And Amy Adams, when you go back and rewatch, she plays all of those layers of those scenes where at the end she's drinking wine and she's dancing with Jeremy Renner and you see also the grief of she knows this isn't going to last, but it's still worth choosing to her at the, in the end. I understand that like this is the science fiction read on that and this is the string theory read of physics on this in, in one way or another, but it's also just like we all know we're going to die. Right. We all know the future. Right. And how we engage in the present is either dictated by our awareness of that or dictated by our denial of Mm. that. And there are so many reads of this that are relevant to the moment. You just talked about sort of how we've been in the pandemic. And then there's the read about global war. There's, There's sort of all these reads. But, you know, at the end of the day, the most resonant piece for me, at least here, is like we all know that we're going to die and how we engage our lives day by day to the extent that we have control over that and to the extent that we have control over like what our relationship with that anxiety is. You know, like that's a pretty beautiful takeaway, like seeing her enjoy the moment with him, even though she knows that it's going to be gone. I don't know as a very neurotic person myself, like I didn't know how she didn't bring it up all the time. To <laughs> <laughs> like they're at the altar at their Vegas wedding. And she's like, our daughter's going to die of a rare disease. I do. <laughs> I just need you to possess that information. <laughs> or like a couple fight. And she's like, I already know I'm going to win this argument. I already need it to be true. <laughs> We know that she knows because she wrote a book on it. Like we know that she knows the future based on her understanding of the language. Like, does he always kind of wonder what she knows? Like, do they have Mm. conversations? Apparently they don't have conversations about the fate of the daughter, but it's, yeah, it raises a lot of very interesting questions. Yeah. Yeah. What I also appreciate about the movie is that even though it is about knowledge of the future, there really is quite a degree of mystery left. That we're still left Mm -hmm. with all these questions and even in the artistic rendering of it. So Jeremy Renner, classic man, is like, hi, nice to meet you. You're incorrect. And he's a physicist. What a delight. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, hi, we're just meeting. I think you're wrong. And one of the things I appreciated in the rewatch about like how real the emotional lives of these characters are is they linger on him when they ultimately have to make the jump into the spaceship. That this guy who confidently has told this person he's meeting for the first time, you're wrong, science is the basis for everything, has this moment where one leap 
changes everything about how he thinks he understands the world. Mm -hmm. He has a whole existential crisis getting off of it and then throws up. Like, there's so much about how that already is shaping the dynamic between eventually what becomes their relationship, too, which is really fascinating. We're watching this at the beginning of what used to look like the start of a world war, but things are all so fundamentally different from when we were having those specific kinds of wars that we're just in territory. We're like, I guess we'll see what happens. Like, that's kind of where we're at right now, because there's so much in this that parallels what we just went through and or continue to go through with the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. How important is framing how we talk about things when it comes to dealing with some crisis or another? And then it seems like we're moving into a new place of talking about a new kind of crisis and framing is so important there. But going back to the pandemic piece, at least, like I think a lot about how much for our pandemic response was set up by how it was communicated to us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how, like, having a megalomaniacal sociopath game show host be our leader in that situation was bad. It was bad. You know, we talk about, like, how this has impacted people with, like, chronic illness or, like, it continues to. It could, and no leader has ever talked about that, right. right? Like, no leader has ever addressed that directly. And no one has framed our thinking about that. And then now thinking about how our frameworks for language, like Mahjong, is that the game that they were playing? Mm -hmm. How it's sort of strictly adversarial. But our only framework for now talking about what's going on in Russia is essentially, like, the Second World War, the Cold War, and we only have that framework mm, for language. And so that true. shapes how we think about right. these things. Like this movie made me think so much about getting stuck in limited frameworks of language end up being as much our doom as all of our other very human tendencies. <laughs> right. Because I think ultimately what's so interesting about the promise of this alien language is not so much that we're able to talk to aliens, it's that we're able to talk to each other. And that trouble of how we figure out how to talk to each other in the moments of crisis, there are these little passing moments in the movie that I think if it had been remade, they would probably get more attention. But where Amy Adams is first walking into her apartment and she's telling her mom, don't listen to that news channel. You know, it's not real. And so the idea that like even when aliens would come to Earth, we're going to have to deal with misinformation. We're going to have to deal with people who are using language in these ways that we don't fully understand. And ultimately, the soldiers who place the bomb in the ship, they show him listening to an Alex Jones type of podcast. Right. Like all of that stuff is sort of informing. So even when so the smart. aliens are here, we would do that. What I think is the beautiful offering of this movie is when you this is the part that got me emotional watching it was that the and I have never felt this emotional about aliens, but like the aliens knew we were going to do that. And they came anyway. Right. Oh. Right. And they've got a big favor to ask for 3,000 years from now. So we don't know, we don't know what they're up against. It's a tall order. What if it's like, hey, give me a ride to my cousin's son's christening, you know? And maybe it's just a long-term invitation to a 15,000-year birthday party or something. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I found that like the troops radicalized by Alex Jones and basically pull off an act of terrorism mm -hmm. against aliens was fascinating. Yeah. Was so prescient. I mean, I guess like I'm always curious about like what counts as prescient if it's just like you just happen to be paying closer attention than everyone else is at the moment. Like, I don't think I don't know, but it felt I was like, oh, you guys fucking nailed it because here we are. I've come across some writing of Octavia Butler where she talks about 
with science fiction, she's often called like a prophet. It's not necessarily about predicting the future. Mm -hmm. It's about are you observant enough to know how these patterns occur and reoccur? And I think good science fiction doesn't actually take us to the future. It gives us an opportunity to reflect on how our current actions will continue even if we go to space, like like how if we can't reimagine something different, we will just continue to do the same things. Right. Yeah, I've read similar interviews or commentary by her. And she's always so like delightfully spicy mm-hmm. about it, where she's just like, No, I'm just I'm just my eyes are open right now. Yeah, she was like, No, I read. I read. <laughs> I read books. She's like, what? Like it's hard? <laughs> Speaking of predictability, one of the other things I love about this movie so much, it is in large part, too, about how bureaucracy continues. That in the face of aliens land, and I guess technically they don't land, they just hover. (laughs) (laughs) It's very polite. They don't disrupt anything. You have to invite them. It's very polite. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At some level, it would boil down to you, like, setting your alarm clock to get up early, to take the train, to go to the site, to like sign the clipboard, to do like to go through all these rooms so you could eventually get to the end. So even though it's fantastical, we still would approach it with all of the bureaucracy and stuff that we build in order to encounter everything. And I think a lot of what that movie shows and embodied in Amy Adams character is, would that work? Or would we actually have to reimagine a different way of working. And so one of the things about the movie that I kind of wish were true is I wish she wasn't the only woman. Mm. I wish you were in a world of like women and non-men too, because some of the conversations might be more productive. Mm-hmm. Some of this might be water is wet. If we were talking to like indigenous folks and African folks who had different conceptions of time, maybe the realization about how the aliens were perceiving it would be something we could get to sooner. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the things I kind of wish to. I also think the most fantastical thing about the movie is that it is the United States who would be the country that would exercise the most military restraint. Yeah, totally. I did like there was like one tiny concession along those lines where when Jeremy Renner, there's like a two minute montage about Jeremy Renner explaining kind of like, (laughs) is it Jeremy Renner's voice in that montage? I think so. It's very Jurassic Park. Expositron? Yeah. He's explaining all of the things that we've learned so far about the aliens and sort of about the physics of the situation, about how the language works. And at one point he nods to, I think, like the Pakistani group that makes some connection about like, is it like how the language or how communication ultimately works? Because it wasn't something that would have been like immediately evident to like the American Mm. team. It was like the weakest attribution of being like it was through collaboration that we got to this. Right. And I agree (laughs) with you entirely, like having Amy Adams not be the only not man on that group was probably (laughs) like we could have had some more expedited realizations but yeah i I was like well i'm glad they made that one nod because otherwise this is a very narcissistic (laughs) (laughs) within i don't know her working group or whatever there's a white guy who's like look at all of history ever whenever someone with superior technology comes to where you live you get colonized and murdered and it's like well, yeah, every time white people go anywhere, that's what happens. But that's kind of the only, kind of all we're looking at. Right. Yeah. Sarah, what were you most, what did you find yourself most affected by or surprised to be affected by in experiencing this for the first time? I didn't expect it to be such a quiet, thoughtful 
movie because you just really don't expect that with aliens. Like when I get ready to watch an alien movie, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for some spectacle and some stuff getting blown up, you know, some like at least mildly xenophobic moral. And it's really a movie about Amy Adams. Like it's about this one character just kind of figuring it out and having to do it by herself because to speak to what we were just talking about, I guess you could also say that like it probably reflects the kind of diversity hiring the military would actually bother with in this situation. They're like, well, look, we got a linguist. Leave us alone. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I love the way that she acts it. I love her connection with the aliens. I feel like it could have been easy for that to feel really cheesy. And probably to some people, it does feel cheesy. But I loved it. I thought they nailed it. She did a, a total Moana. It's, it's like a cross between Moana and the Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a quiet indie movie about aliens. And to what you said before, like, yeah, I was very moved by thinking about it's kind of like when you watch It Follows, which is a movie that succeeds for me because you watch it and you're like, oh, my God, like, what if I was being followed around by this like eventual deathly fate and like no matter what I do and how fast I outrun it like eventually it's gonna get me and I'll die and then you're like well actually that's just actually basically what's going on it's just that there's not sort of a person staggering around <laughs> after you and they're gonna touch you it's just you know but it's like very close to reality and I feel like this is the same kind of premise where you're like wow like imagine throwing your heart and soul into your child, even though you know you know their childhood for one reason or another <laughs> won't last forever, or into a relationship you know won't last forever, into a life which you know will eventually, you know, change in devastating ways and end. And then you're like, oh, oh, I am doing that. Oh, I'm so brave. Yeah. So I was very moved by how brave we all are. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like knowing that we have this pivot from going like, ah, like pandemic and masks and how we respond and whatever, all the different things that the conversation has superficially been about in the past couple of years. I'm not saying pandemic conversation is superficial, mm -hmm. but the ways mm -hmm. that we've approached the conversation sometimes. And then now moving to this place where we're like... Ah, the global stability is feeling a little more precarious than it always does. And it always feels precarious and it always feels like there's some shit going down, but like watching how even like rhetorical realities change for people, depending on what the, the perceived adversary is, even though like, you know, Putin is a white supremacist hero to like a lot of people on the far right here. It's like a lot less popular this week than it was last week to suggest that you are a Putin stan. And just watching like how quickly the rhetorical reality, like the presented reality of people is depending on what they're up against at that particular moment or depending on sort of like what the adversary is at the moment. So like watching Amy Adams come in to class and be like, we're studying why Portuguese sounds so different from the other romance languages. Like that's what the lesson is. Yeah. And then no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. Actually, things are very different. The things we care about mm -hmm. are very different now. And we all have the things that motivate us as individuals but like the signifiers that we're going to attach ourselves to have changed very quickly and we all need to catch up in some way mm. Mm. other than sort of the dream sequence where amy is on this ship we only ever see the aliens through a screen mm -hmm. and there's something meta about watching this story on a screen as an opportunity to kind of reflect on who you are mm. and 
I was drawn to this movie for a couple of reasons. One, it's less than two hours long, and we need to bring that back. Right. As an industry, let's get in and out. Amen. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> but I think the other thing, too, is it's a movie about what we do before there's disaster. And there's something really comforting <laughs> about, like, we would be prepared. Mm. That we would actually be consulting the people we would need to be consulting. We would be listening intimately to scientists. We would, even in this fictional world, we still have a bit of an adversarial relationship. She almost gets shot at the end when she's going to call the head of the Chinese military. But there's something appealing and really comforting about the idea that we would be prepared Mm-hmm. And that knowing the consequences of our actions intimately would make us make intentional choices. Yeah. And also that she would be like taking off her hazmat suit and they would be like, leave her alone. Let her do what she wants. She's a linguist. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of respect for knowledge is like very far away. As opposed to her bringing down like intergalactic smallpox. Like what should be the primary concern for everyone. Well, they've got a partition. I mean, it's fine. You just can't, you just got to hand the aliens soft felt pens for when they write so that they don't fashion into a weapon to kill Dr. Chilton with. (laughs) And also to your point, Ryan, like how much whatever plays out is entirely contingent on who is in charge at the moment. Right. Who is smart enough to bring a linguist in and which linguist. And like, it was almost the wrong linguist. Yeah. Like that's the other thing that we learned. Like she was insisting that she had to be present and they were like, that's a non-starter. And they brought in another linguist who didn't work out. And then she came like between some smart decision-making and then chance and a time loop. And then also that piece where she does talk with the general on the phone, I'd looked up what she said, which Mm -hmm. is itself fascinating. And, you know, she'd said the piece where she, said his wife's dying words to him as a means of being like I'm legit like I have this information this is something I've learned and then mm-hmm. followed it with saying like war essentially makes everyone a widow or a widower or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Oh, wow. I like that it was like philosophy that changed him. She wasn't like I have this information and they're talking about language. She was like philosophy mic drop. I'm out. War is over. Right. Spoken word saved the day actually. Yes. <laughs> when you only have 20 <laughs> seconds you gotta just go straight for the heart. It was great. Maybe we don't, but like there is a common belief that, you know, the leaders of these countries are making decisions based on like the information that they have and these rational, logical choices. And ultimately, what gets the day saved is her saying to this man what his wife said, Hmm. this personal, intimate conversation that these people who we give so much power over states are motivated so much by personal feeling, sentiment, and personality. And that becomes foreign policy by extension. Mm -hmm. And so what saves the day is not like, you know, tactically, it's not really a good decision to move on this and X, Y, Z. It was like, do you remember what your wife said when she was dying? Right. Do you remember how you felt? How would it feel to know that you caused that suffering for more people globally? And I love that there is that message where it's like the strength and the weakness of leadership on a global level is that we're just puny humans Mm -hmm. who only have very small frameworks for relatability. And then everything beyond that is abstract. Right. Yeah. And who say like, wow, imagine war in Europe. It's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Expand on that thought. (laughs) 
I can't wait to revisit this stretch of shows in the future. Oh my God. Yeah. And just be like, well, what were we doing? For historians, I know you're listening. This moment, I'll describe it as like a seven layer dip of global crises. It's just like we got kind of used to having a pandemic and it's like, okay, cool. You're used to having a pandemic. Great. Now we're going to have a giant crisis in democracy that's like going to come to a head, but it's not really going to go away. That's just going to stay brewing. Okay, cool. All right. And now we're going to have war on the horizon. Yeah. Let's do, let's have a war. Yeah. Well, there's a double down push on fascism in this country. Right. That's why I enjoy narratives that are like post-apocalyptic and there's one cause of stress. It's just zombies (laughs) or it's just aliens. (laughs) Exactly. You had a video recently, I think, that was, uh, was it notes for the people writing America, the show? (laughs) I sure did. And that was one of my notes. It's like, it's too many villains. (laughs) It really is. It's too many villains. Pick one. It's like Pretty Little Liars, you know, it's embarrassing. Not that that's not a great show. (laughs) Ryan, if you were trying to like explain what this movie has to offer to somebody who's like alien movies aren't for me or like sci-fi is not for me, like what's your pitch to them? It's the least alien movie you've probably seen. Mm -hmm. one One of the things that's interesting is I watched all these clips where the director was talking about how much he hated CGI. He resented CGI. Hmm. He was drawn to Amy Adams because she had never done science fiction before and she was going to approach it as an emotional drama. Part of what it is, is like if you don't like the alien part, it's actually two movies at once. Hmm. It's the movie that is the story of the relationship between her and her daughter and her life. And it's the movie that's the story about the aliens. And I would say even formally, it's interesting because the two stories are told in the inverse of each other, Hmm. where one story is, quote, moving forward and the other story is technically moving back. So at the end, she's saying this is the beginning of your story. I think the structure of it would be something I would tell someone to latch on to. One of the screenwriters said that from the beginning, the first five pages and the last five pages were the same. Mm. Hmm which is such an interesting way to think about the construction of a movie that is essentially trying to tell you or invite you to reflect on time this way. But I would say that there are a lot of different narratives to hook onto where if you're not one for aliens, it's not really an alien movie in a traditional sense. It uses the alien, I think, in a really beautiful way, which is ultimately as a mirror. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand that same piece. And then her daughter's name's a palindrome. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. There's like a little. Oh, oh yeah. Cute. I love that. The aliens that we depict and what they're doing often are like, it's like we're utilizing them to sort of allow us to have an experience. So, you know, it's like we got, we're getting chased by this alien. Oh no. They often give us something to destroy, something to be dominated by, like that kind of a Western story. And by Western, I mean frontier not Occidental. And in this, it's like, yeah, they want us to think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Even the score, I think, kind of underscores that point where Mm. I think the composer is Johan Johansson, who did it, who passed away recently, Mm. I believe. But the alien sounds are actually human sounds. It's people making these repetitive Mm. noises in strange combination and conjunction with each other. Mm. And so even the construction of the sonic alien is made up of people. Hmm. Hmm. It's expansive and it's open and it's unsettling. But if you listen very closely, it's unsettling because there you can hear the human. 
You just hear the human doing something you Mm. haven't heard before. You know, as we were talking about before, every time we try to imagine aliens, like we really can't get beyond the fact that when we imagine a sentient being, we're really limited by what we've seen on Earth in a profound way. And we're kind of limited to the human when we're trying to imagine intelligent life or how, you know, a brain we could converse with might be able to function. We realize when we create stories about aliens that like inevitably we're just all of our imagination comes from our understanding of the human. Yeah. Right. And like, I do like how, you know, we, we have that competition between their ideas between Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams right out the gate when they meet each other, but that the human experience is entirely defined by physical limitations and rhetorical limitations. Right. Our ability to understand concepts and our ability to, you know, conform to the limitations of our physical reality. Yeah. I like that a whole lot. And if we could just change, I'm not going to say slightly, I feel like being able to see time in this way is a bigger change than slight, but it's mm-hmm. largely a matter of like shifting of perspective and shifting of imagination in the face of those limitations could get us pretty far. Yeah. I don't find a lot of things in this season, unfortunately, that make me optimistic about the state of the world. I would like to feel that way. And I try to conjure that even with comedy Mm-hmm. But there's something, it's such an optimistic offering about who we could be. And I think, too, it reinforces for me the power of fiction. If I can be emotionally invested in a giant squid thing that has a fog machine and it could make me weep because this thing that doesn't even speak a language I recognize is just gurgling, but it like has come to earth and says, I think you're capable. I think there's something there to you. Being able to have that conjured in watching a less than two hour movie (laughs) also, I think, hopefully demonstrates that people do have greater capacity to feel than we currently see. And the fact that story can conjure that up for people, I think, is really, really powerful. And it makes me excited to be a person who tells stories. Mm. That's beautiful. Sarah, should we do the question? (sighs) Yeah. Okay. There is a future dad in this movie, but who's the daddy? Ryan, why don't you go first? Uh, I think it's a movie surrounded by dads. I actually think we're at capacity of dads, like we, we <laughs> do with a few less. But, <laughs> but I think in some ways, the aliens are the daddy. Mm. Because we feel very much like toddlers in the universe who are like are inclined to fight. And then someone comes to earth and goes, sit down, not now. Let's <laughs> like kind of like sit in your corners and sit and reflect. Do you really want to hit your brother? Do you really want to hit your sit? Like it reads both like dad and both maternal. I guess that's the most non-binary answer you can get from a non-binary person is that it's an alien sort of non-binary parental love that is healing. Do you think daddy can be a non-binary term? I think so. I think it could be. I'm one of those people where there's there are small children in my life hmm. and I very much reflect on like the ways that I care for them as mothering. And so I, th- I think that mm-hmm. however people sort of attach those aspects of parenthood, I think I think that could work. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because I guess we weirdly ended up I mean, not weirdly, we forced people to do this, but we've talked about like, what does daddy mean a lot in the past year and a half? Of our lives. And I feel like daddy energy feels like, to me at this point, like based on the definitions we've ended up with, that it really, it can speak to gender and also really transcends gender. And it feels like it's about sort of like a calm, loving presence that maybe 
is part of an ideal of masculinity yeah. or can just be sort of part of anything you want. Yeah, it's a projection of like aspiration sometimes or pretty often. Yeah. Mm. The daddy I would have liked can do all these things. Right. <laughs> right. You know the daddy when you see it. Yeah. Who was yours, Sarah? I mean, I'm going to say Amy Adams is my daddy because I feel like she reminds me in this role a lot actually of Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak who's another character who's like, I am going to have to like leapfrog about 17 levels of military hierarchy and then commit some treason to save the planet. So I'm going to do it. Yeah, she kind of effectively has to do, I feel like, a this moment version of that because he's, you know, he's kind of like action Dustin Hoffman in that moment. He kind of steals a helicopter and so forth. And she has to sort of quietly save the world without a lot of running around, basically. <laughs> I'm very impressed by her. <laughs> I have a couple of false starts. Like one is I want to say like hallucinogenics are the daddy because this movie is saying a lot of things <laughs> that I think like acid culture has been saying for a long time. And I'm this is a person who's on the record hmm. is saying I'm so bummed that somehow Joe Rogan became the hallucinogenic spokesperson in this country. We need a better one. But like this Movies saying a lot about perceptions of time and reality and physical space that has been mm. being said by people who are, you know, on that scene. But he's not really the daddy, but I just want to acknowledge this daddy move. Two daddy moves. They're not that I agree with your takes more than anything, but the two daddy moves are Forrest Whitaker being like, tell me how to sell why we're doing this so I can send it up the chain. And I will begrudgingly be like, that'll work for now. Like, that's a very, <laughs> when she explains yeah. it and it's very rational and he can just be like, yeah, we're going to make that happen. He's like, that'll work for a little while. That's as good as he can do in that moment. And I love that moment. I was like, I recognize this very much in sort of various parenting dynamics. And then the general and his time loop revelations that help aid Amy Adams in being the hero. Yeah. I really yeah. love that he is the person who, because he thinks he's doing the best thing, is going to create destruction. Yeah. But also has this duality in his future self mm -hmm. where he's able to be like, here's the information you need to protect the world from how I was. Yeah. Out of curiosity, knowing that you've gone from before working on last week tonight, did you have experience in television writing before? I had not. So a lot of my writing experience had been I had written essays, I'd written poetry, I had written some comedy satire, I'd even done some journalism, I'd gotten some experience writing in a whole bunch of different forms. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the comedic writing for acting that people have seen or writing for performance that people have seen has actually been me learning in public in real time, which is a very vulnerable thing to do. How has you writing for sort of a larger you know, television audience, how has that changed the way you think about communicating with people? So much of the writing that I've done prior to this has been writing that is attached to my face, my image, my voice, my likeness. And I'm trying to figure out what it means to distinguish those things and how you yourself become seen as part of the product. A lot of what comes to you as a writer is time sort of spent reflecting and quiet. And then this thing kind of goes outside of you for people to engage. Mm. But when it is your likeness, that has been like a really complex thing 
to figure out because strangely enough, for as much as I love to perform, I don't really like attention. I like attention when I'm on stage and then I don't want any attention when I'm off. Mm-hmm. Right. And so trying to piece that together and I think it has shaped my writing, but what I am hopeful and crossing my fingers about is that it doesn't make me a less courageous writer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I felt myself sometimes being braver earlier and I want to cultivate more of that courage in my writing too. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like this movie is about knowing your audience (laughs) (laughs) and who you become as part of that process of being engaged with them. And being vulnerable in communication as evidenced by holding up a whiteboard in front of you that says human on it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that's this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you, of course, to Ryan Ken for joining us on this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who produces our episodes, who makes them sound great. Carolyn's a musician. You can find links to her music and other stuff related to her being a musician (laughs) at carolynkendrick.com. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats to the show. Thank you for listening, of course. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Twitter, and you can find us, of course, like I said, up front on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate that we get to do this with you. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful week. You are good.